Okay. We are live now. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining Nick Land's Bitcoin and Philosophy Session 2. I'm going to stop talking and pass, pass it on to Nick to begin the seminar. Go ahead, Nick. You're on. Okay, great. Um, hi, everybody. Um, I hope people have seen the various bits and pieces that have been um, posted in the uh, whatever it's called the, the the school bloggy thing we've got classroom um, the classroom yeah um, it, it's it's already looking good um, I got a just a little while before I, a really helpful um, piece sent to me by um, sorry, hang on, I'm just slightly losing my grip a minute here, by Eric, um, um, which if people haven't had a chance to look at it, I recommend for sure. It raises some really interesting uh, topics to follow up on. Um, and there's a sort of some wild Ethereum stuff beginning to accumulate, which maybe we should push up the road a little bit. Um, also, Mo sent a few pieces. I thought the Bitcoin mining thing was very helpful, and the little text that is the small announcement that Satoshi Nakamoto made about the uh, Bitcoin system that he just produced is a really excellent, fascinating little text. Um, I'm. I think I should probably give people a little bit more warning before. Uh, launching into a thing that it sort of encourages close reading I think but maybe we could look at that next week along with the other stuff that we're doing um, so what I was hoping we could uh, get on with here is running through the main uh, substance of the of the course which is of course Satoshi Nakamoto's basic Bitcoin paper um, and um, I think one thing that's worth saying about that is when you hear a term like, say, uh, a completely non-random example, the critique of pure reason, you immediately think of a book. I mean, I would be stunned if any of you would say to me, when you hear that expression, the first thing that comes to your mind is the critique of pure reason, the thing, the critique of pure reason, the actual process or the undertaking or anything other than when you hear that expression, you think, oh, that's Kant's book, that's the first critique. It's quite intriguing that Bitcoin doesn't work like that. I would be equally stunned in the opposite direction if anybody, when they hear the word Bitcoin, think, oh, that's Satoshi Nakamoto's 2008 paper. That's the name of a text. Um, and it's, there's obviously all kinds of reasons for that. I think all of them are interesting, and all of them are things that I hope we're going to be able to uh, dig into. But it's 
on a very, very superficial level, fascinating because, of course, Bitcoin is the name of a paper. I mean, when in, in this original little mail, um, he refers to this paper being produced. This paper is called Bitcoin, obviously with a fascinating and deep uh, subtitle that we could easily spend uh, four weeks looking at, but we'll keep coming back to it. Um, and the fact that we don't immediately think we're talking about a text when we're talking about Bitcoin is already telling us something very interesting. Um, it's telling us that um, if, as I'm trying to uh, persuade you, and perhaps even on some other storylines as well, if Bitcoin is the name for critique in its most advanced form, that critique is no longer instantiated in a text, primarily. It has migrated somewhere else. You know, the place in which critique takes place is no longer within this uh, space that we're familiar with of being within a book, within a paper, within text, something that we can reference in that way. So there's something that I think is both necessary and artificial about treating this whole problem textually. I, I think it's necessary to do it because so much is happening in the whole Bitcoin world that it's the only way within the sort of time period available to us to maintain some kind of focus and discipline and order in the way that we're approaching that. And I have absolutely no doubt at all that this text merits that kind of attention. Um, so I think it's something that we can't avoid doing. But at the same time, it's also something that is strange in, in the way that would not be familiar in previous philosophical undertakings. It would seem completely natural that we were talking about a book. If we were talking about what is the critique of pure reason, of course we'd be talking about a book. Um, but actually, structurally, the, the actual cognitive issue is exactly the same. I mean, you know, we have two different phases in the history of critique. Both of them are attendant, uh, 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 associated with a text. In one, it's the most natural thing in the world to talk about a book. In another, it's a, it's a kind of artificial and peculiar gesture that we have to, we're forced to constantly uh, question. But that all said, as a kind of introductory remark, um, we, here we are with the text. Um, can I just say, uh, at this point, um, the tendency probably will be that I will continue talking unless someone jabs me. So I would like to be jabbed. I mean, um, so please uh, jump in as soon as you as you want to. Um, my, my hopes at this stage is that we can just advance some distance into this paper with everybody being confident about what's going on and they can see both what's happening on a first order level, they can see the kind of issues and topics and questions that are running off it, and they can also see why we are completely within a recognizable philosophical problematic in, in dealing with this paper in the way we're doing it. Um, so, I think this text is extremely uh, and 
um, a bit uh, surreptitiously dense in the sense it's it's actually I think most people's experience of it is it's much smoother and easier read than you would expect. I mean this is very advanced it's coming from a very advanced field of knowledge. It's coming with from a lot of highly technical expertise. It would be the most natural thing in the world for it to be extremely off-putting and difficult and really inaccessible to people who were not um, technically expert in these areas. I don't think that's the impression that you get. Um, um, I'd, I'd be surprised if that's the way people uh, respond to it. In my opinion, there's only one section that is truly intimidating on a technical level and we won't get there for a while. That's the section on number 11. It's the longest, the most paranoid uh, section about um, security threats to the Bitcoin system and it gets into some technical probabilistic calculations about, about uh, threats but we won't get there for a while and um, let, let's see how we can deal with that. I think it's. I think we can get the gist even of that without being too obstructed by it. But up to that point, I think it's a very, very smooth reading. Um, and it's a text that is worth trying deliberately, actually, to slow down with and not to just get carried along by it because it all seems to make so much sense. It seems to be so... Uh, facile in the way that it's just communicating something very clearly and in a sensible fashion and it's very easy therefore to slip right past uh, a lot of very interesting uh, content that doesn't isn't prickly isn't rebarbative it doesn't it doesn't force you to to get uh, tangled up in it um, so the title, as we've already seen, first of all, it's called Bitcoin. Bitcoin, one of the meanings of Bitcoin is this, is this text. And the subtitle is a definition. Um, and I think everything about this definition is worth pausing on, but I won't pause on it for a long time. Um, it, it starts with an indefinite article, which means that he's being at least theatrically modest about the whole thing. It's a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. He's not saying that uh, Bitcoin monopolizes this particular definition. Um, and this kind of issue will actually come back in a lot of the concrete discussions about Bitcoin, where people really uh, get into serious questions about to what extent is or should Bitcoin be a natural monopoly? Um, I think we'll get a chance to look at some writings, particularly by a very interesting Bitcoin commentator called Daniel Kravitz, who is a very, very strong advocate for pushing forward the sort of monopolistic potential of Bitcoin. And basically he says that anything that obstructs that tendency is actually uh, preventing it really realizing its full potential. Um, but we'll move on from, from that, that, the little word A. And then, so the next word then is peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, and this is, a, is an expression that I think is so huge in its historical resonances. Again, that it's really worth, we will definitely keep coming back to it. Um, 
it's basically, I think, the whole political horizon of modernity is captured in that expression, peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, we'll see concretely what it means for Bitcoin when um, we push a little bit further in. But it's associated with a whole series of associated terms. Um, and in particular, with a certain set of notions that are very easily and regularly politicized um, to do with a formal equality and flatness. And it's a term that is, is very interesting in terms of the fact it's very, very provocative and stimulating uh, for uh, polemics. I mean, in both directions, all the most agitated, highly energized, uh, socio-political confrontations of the modern period are connected with this notion. I will just skip ahead just a tiny bit, just to, to flesh that out a tiny bit, because he says, uh, down in the introduction, he has a little phrase where he's, he's talking about his own replacement for the trusted third-party model and the ideal that Bitcoin is aiming for, which he, he says succinctly and clearly as allowing any two willing parties to transact directly with each other without the need for a trusted third party. Um, that is the peer-to-peer -peer model. Um, and it's a model that captures all the antagonisms of the modern period in, in what it's trying to do. You know, it can be seen, uh, it's basically any sense of what is the, the teleology of liberalism from its origins in the sort of chewing up of traditional society through to later debates about, its, about uh, criticism coming from the left about what liberalism um, is about are all tied up with this notion, about the notion that two individuals or agents disengaged from any social context should be freed to directly interact with each other, negotiating that interaction between themselves without any extrinsic or transcendent uh, authority being involved in that negotiation. In an in, in absolute nutshell, in the old sense of the term, that is the liberal notion of social interaction that is being captured here. And so we can already see, just as soon as we say peer-to-peer -peer here, where we can see how fraught the politics of Bitcoin are going to be. We can yes, see can that people who, yeah, yes, of course. So, so let's say, let's compare this to uh, the file sharing protocols, right? And how quickly yeah. they were, they were all being shut down because right. of, because of the origin of what is being shared, which is supposedly like copyrighted material, right? Right. So there's a shift here too between sort of like sharing already existing rather than sharing what's being what's being produced within the system itself. Rather than you know, because in like any kind of like 
torrent system, right? It's like you're usually sharing something from outside, whereas here, Bitcoin yes. is tolerated or not shut down, or at least not yet, because yes. what's being shared is nobody has claims to it. Um, I, I think that this is going to be huge. <laughs> I know I'm saying that about a lot of things, but for sure, it's, a, it's incredibly unsettled, I think, this whole question. And obviously, you, you have to remember, Mo, with this, that the first big piece of social context with Bitcoin like this is the Silk Road, you know, where immediately it's being tied up with piracy, with various types of um, um, commerce in, in contraband goods, in, in all kinds of uh, transactions that are um, um, obstructed by existing social authorities. I mean, it's already, again, I think, in this peer-to-peer -peer thing. I mean, the Bitcoin is a find. It has a natural inclination towards allowing any two agents um, distributed anywhere within the social field to engage in any activity that is mutually acceptable, irrespective of any external social values or judgments or laws or any of these things. So, of course, you're right that when it's purely being used as a um, system for monetary transfer, that's hidden. But implicit in monetary transfer is the fact that something is being trafficked or traded. You know, I think it's or it's necessarily going to always be opened onto the social field. I mean, if if you expect me to give you some bitcoins then there's going to be something I'm wanting you to do in exchange for that. And so we're already going to be exiting from a completely her um, hermetically closed uh, system into a wider commercial field that is going to introduce all these larger social and political questions about what are acceptable uh, transactions taking place between um particular agents. Um, are, you, are you still there, Mo, with that? I don't know, has Mo, is Mo still? Yeah, I'm us? here, I'm here. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I would. Um, so, um, I, I, so the, saying that is to say, on the one hand, it necessarily is already tangled up in these kind of questions. Um, and secondly, there is a really interesting, open, and I think quite deep and tangled question about what, from the side of the state, the politics of Bitcoin look like. Um, and again, I think there's been a few already very suggestive, interesting things written about that. Um, um, I don't think this is the time to dig into it too much, but one thing that I do think is really worth saying at an early point is that um, there's a asymmetry between the state's public pronouncements and the state's um, actual interests. Um, and if we have anything other than the most naive notion of a liberal, and this time in a modern 
sense of that term, a modern transparent representational state, as soon as we begin to be suspicious about the, the, the realism of that, then we expect that there is going to be some kind of deep or dark state. Um, and there's two basic elements to that. One of them is the uh, what we could call generally intelligence services or security services or anything that if in any way relies upon covert operation. And, and clearly, we all know those things. I mean, it's it's publicly announced that those, those social zones exist. It's not a secret that they do. Um, and secondly, there's um, agents who, while having some official status within the within the, the the political administration, are also nevertheless private agents and have private interests and do private deals. Um, that are also going to be occulted and, and and shadowy in relation to their public profile, public statements, and and public presentation. And so, for those two aspects of the deep or dark state, Bitcoin is by no means an unambiguously negative phenomenon. You know, I think if we can just coldly, without being getting too excited about it, think about these regular uh, associations between covert parts of the state and narcotics industries and the narcotics trade because it allows them to have black, black funds to operate with people who are very influential in the kind of fields they need to, to engage in a whole series of free covert activity outside of the limitations posed by public scrutiny. If we find those kind of activities understandable, then surely we should expect that they were going to see Bitcoin and at least with half of their mind are going to think, oh, this is a resource of use to us. You know, we we could do a lot of things with this. Um, and it, so it seems to me, while publicly the state has to say, look, this thing is basically a problem um, and it's kind of it's a threat to the public sphere there is this large piece of political machinery that is deliberately outside the public sphere and the fact that we now have this resource that, uh, that facilitates activity outside the public sphere for that component of the political machine is not any in any way a, uh, an obvious problem I just wanted to just say I, I just was looking up on Wikipedia um, where it's illegal so far. I actually hadn't done that yet and seeing it's apparently illegal in a few countries and I wasn't expecting that. Um, like Iceland of all places it's legal according to Wikipedia. Um, right. Yes. Yeah, that is strange. Yes. Sorry, just to make sure I'm hearing you right, that it's illegal in Iceland. Ill illegal, yes, not legal. Right. Yeah, because yeah. I also heard legal, and I thought, okay, then it's just all the other places. But it's <laughs> right. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, um, I I need to look this up. I mean, there's a list of these places. Could, could, do you have any other? Uh, do you have any sense of the other places where? Yes, where it says um, just in a little introduction. It is currently not legal in Bangladesh, Bolivia, Ecuador, Iceland, Indonesia, 
Russia, Thailand, Vietnam, and Kyrgyzstan. Right. Russia. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. That's what it says. I can't vouch for the for how up to date this is, but this is Wikipedia. No, it's a very interesting list of countries. I mean, if you were trying to find some common thread between them, it wouldn't be at mm -hmm. all easy. Yes, that's something definitely to 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 look at carefully. I to be honest, I I mean, I would be just speculating very wildly about the different motives motives there. So I don't think it would be very helpful to do that. But yeah. it's interesting, yeah. And it does say, um, this does, for example, for Iceland, it says this does not stop businesses in Iceland from mining bitcoins. Right. So that could imply that there's no law from having a bitcoin mine. Right. Uh, I take it. Which is I also mean the, interesting. Well, I followed the Chinese situation uh, uh, relatively closely, and it also is ambiguous like this, and um, because um, I think it's now illegal to engage in direct currency transactions with Bitcoin. It, it was the case that the, the the Bitcoin trade in China was just absolutely mushrooming mm. hugely, and there was then a crackdown um, uh, about a year ago, I think now. Mm. Um, but as you know, they still have the this massive Bitcoin mining operation, which is the same. Yeah, um, I watched the link that you sent, one yeah. of the, the short YouTube video link. Yes, did, yes. Um, in the in the case of China, did that correlate? Because you mentioned a year ago they cracked down, and I know it was if I'm not if I'm not totally mistaken or off, it was about a year ago when bitcoins were over a thousand U.S. dollars right. to to one bitcoin, and now it's down to two fifty. Is there any correlation right. between the the Chinese crackdown? And well, the Chinese crackdown wasn't responsible for, I think, the collapse in the in the price. Um, I think that people expected there would be a, a, a big problem there, but I don't think it was. I think there was a serious time lag, at least, between between the time that, that the Chinese rules changed and the and the price collapsed in that way. Well, I just wanted to add, uh, traders in the futures market of Bitcoin <coughs> would really leverage when every time Bitcoin would be banned in China, they'd like play off that rumor and crash the price on purpose, right? And then relong it and just like keep playing off the news. Yes. I mean, How my personal guess about this is that I think China will not accept a Bitcoin. It will definitely, if it goes in this direction, it will produce its own Bitcoin mm. clone. I mean, it, that's the way it does everything. You know? And so it would completely break form if it was to accept this thing that had come from the other side of the world and, and move on to it. I think when we see a, a Sinocoin or Dracoin or something, they, they've been persuaded by the model and they're doing a an indigenous version of it that could be identical, could be a perfect clone, but it will just in some sense, even if just symbolically be theirs. And you know, that to me is what would be expected. I would be honestly stunned if they would you know, just to stick with the symbolism is a country that is very concerned with symbolism and I just don't think that symbolism would be acceptable to them to have the uh, RMB being uh, dispatched by some, 
currency system from from overseas, it would it wouldn't work. Um, My 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 question will be: How do these different systems of Bitcoin talk to each other? If there's already more than one, which there there are, and if right. let's say China or other places start start their own club, because yes. it won't be Bitcoin if they're not somehow transacting with each other. So somehow through this trend, because as you know, like I mean I mean I follow old school old school monetary a little bit. As you know, Nick, there's a bank in England called Bank of International Settlements, right? Right. And BIS is, is, is actually the, I argue, is one of the most important financial institutions in the world because they basically set all the exchange rates of all the currencies and everyone just abide by whatever, whatever BIS sets, right? So there must be a BIS for Bitcoin at some point to somehow validate and uh, to validate and also set rates of how these bitcoins relate to each other. And in that sense, then you're going to end up having with one bitcoin, regardless of China or any country. I mean, in a normal circumstance, where there's no war or boycott or sanctions, there will be there will be like basically one bitcoin because BIS BIS's job will be to reg or the, or the bitcoin BIS will regulate how all this work together. Um, yeah, again, I think there's, there's a whole bunch of things that come off this. I mean, one question is, is to do with the uh, mainstreaming of Bitcoin in terms of like existing institutional structures and, and people following um, the way that a lot of the polemics around it, particularly, are playing out, knows that that's a huge issue. You know, there's basically if you if you see Bitcoin politics as a set of concentric circles, um, and on the outer level there are sort of critiques based on very sort of deeply philosophical and traditional issues to do with. I I would say they can be summarised as saying with the with the ideological and historical meaning of liberalism, you know, um, critiques from the left about ideas of algorithmic government to do with the, the de-democratization of, of economic processes, these kind of things on the, on the left side. Um, I, I guess there's, there's a nationalistic version of that on the right, although I haven't, I'm not sure I've really seen anything striking written from that point of view. Um, but as you push into the inner core, there's one uh, debate that is overwhelmingly kind of organizing the way these things go and it's between Bitcoin ultras associated if you're looking at the stuff at the um, Nakamoto Institute it tends to love those guys and I mean they are very very stimulating and interesting and, and radical in, the way, in their approach to this uh, it's, I've already mentioned Daniel Kravish is one Michael Goldstein is another guy Pierre Rochard, there's a bunch of these characters who are very, very uncompromising about it. Um, and on the other side, there are people who are wanting to uh, basically make Bitcoin safe for venture capital. Um, and the most uh, significant character, I think, by far in this is Mark 
Andreessen, who's very vocal about it, very willing to uh, poke libertarians in the eye, um, even trying to frighten them off it, um, and really wanting to say, look, this is, uh, you know, has a kind of radical sort of anarcho-capitalist edge to it in the initial phase, but what this really is is a phase of internet technology that the whole world economy is going to move on to, and the smoothest path to that is to stop it being so scary and to really assimilate it to established social institutions and to say about the uh, blockchain in particular that as a public ledger this is something that's extremely compatible even he would go as far as they has an affinity with modes of regulation and surveillance that are already in play in these social institutions so that kind of mainstreaming argument I would say would be very uh, sympathetic to what what Mo's just said there that they, you would expect to have international and international regulatory authorities and um, overseers in some way of the way this is working. But on the other edge, I think there'd be a lot of suspicion about it in the sense that if you can get together, this is back to this peer-to-peer -peer business, if you can get together with somebody over the internet and agree on a transaction between a Bitcoin and anything else. It can be any other coin, it can be any physical commodity, it can be anything that you can actually um, settle a contract about over the internet, then the internet is going to uh, facilitate that without any regard for the interests or concerns of regulatory authorities, whether they're on the national or international level. I mean, if there is a Chinese Sinocoin and I personally decide that one Sino coin is worth one Bitcoin, and I approach over the net someone who's sitting on a pile of Sino coins, and we strike a private deal that I will transfer some Bitcoins to them and they'll transfer some Sino coins to me, then how is something, some uh, financial authority going to impose its own sense of the proper regulation of that trade on that on that deal? I just don't see how it's technically possible. Um, so it, I think it's only if all the agents involved are actually welcoming the role of such an authority that that, that is going to be something that's plausible. Now, I mean, as long I as think Mark Andrew, Yeah. As long as miners are willing to accept transactions into the blocks that they're creating regardless of their origin so and have an incentive to keep doing so. So, I mean, you have to see the, the market cap or the total value of the Bitcoin being produced and traded in the exchange. I mean, Sinocoin would seem to be, you know, a possible area where this could happen where China has the wherewithal to set up. Um, their own regulated exchanges where most of the capital sunk into it would be happening there and so they'd have some ability to control um, you know, what was most lucrative for miners to accept into their blocks. But in Bitcoin itself, it doesn't seem as if you know, quote-unquote regulation would be anything other than access to the capital. Uh, access to the capital of regulated spaces as opposed to there being any, you know, that doesn't impose constraints on anyone else's uses of Bitcoin. Right. Sure. And, and this, this gets us to this whole notion of cash, 
I mean, in saying, and here it goes out on a very interesting um, and controversial limb, in calling this an electronic cash system, then from the, in the very title, it's saying that those kind of uh, controls are not going to work, you know, because as you say, insofar as capital is cash, then it's already departed from that system of oversight and, and control. And I think this would be, if we were going to try and find a word to hinge some of these debates on, it would be precisely here. Like the Mark Andreessen's of the world are going to say, look, get real, you know, large chunks of capital are not and never will be cash. Um, you know, too, there's too much social investment in what is happening to those things. So no big company dependent upon goodwill of its national authorities, uh, concerned with its, its public relations, is going to treat its capital stock as cash to be just deployed at will on these peer-to-peer System. So that whole piratical attraction of Bitcoin, as you know, people simply have this totally um, off-the-grid stocks of cash that they're they're engaged in private deals with, is obviously something that that the mainliners are saying, the mainstreamers are saying, look, that's just not a realistic way that this is going to play out. Um, but yeah, that's the battlefield for sure. So can I ask, are you defining um, cash then um, as uh, an entity you can trans you can use as a form of transaction in private, so so outside of regulation? What would yes. be your, your simplest? My definition of cash, it's a, it's, a, it's a strong definition, and I think, to be honest, it's a bit too strong mm. for the Bitcoin system to easily tolerate. So it has a, it will remain a slightly tense issue, but I think a, the most economical and uh, strict definition of cash is it's fully anonymous money, mm. and it's the it's the equivalent at a higher level of financial instrument of a bearer bond, where with a you know if you go through the the set of paper financial instruments, and it starts as we were saying last week that you've put some gold in a bank vault and you've got a piece of paper that says I, you can redeem this and get your gold back from the warehouse. So that's the most simple step in this. But if you then take the next step and it says on that bit of paper and whatever kind of protections have taken place, I mean we're into the double spending problem here immediately but I'll have to bracket that off. If it says on that, on that piece of paper anybody whatsoever who turns up with this piece of paper, even if they're wearing a ski mask, is entitled to take the gold out of the warehouse, then that is then become cash. Um, because it's no longer, there's no longer any form of uh, institutional social approval that needs to be super added to make that a transactional uh, entity. You can just simply you know, anybody who's got it, you can strike a deal, and if you end up with that bearer bond, then you got it and can redeem it in any way you want. So that, so that is what cash looks like when it's kind of formalised at a higher level. Um, and obviously, um, that ideal um, is feeding right into the Bitcoin protocol and has a deep history in previous. E-money e and e-cash 
systems. So it's 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 something that's being inherited by Satoshi Nakamoto. You know, the, the, it's not really questioned here why people would want cash. I mean, it's just taken, I think, as obvious coming out of the tradition he's dealing with that that if you want a form of resources that have passed beyond any regulatory horizon and are freely disposable, um, um, and hence we get the Silk Road and all of those sort of phenomena. Um, so I'm, I'm going to venture now, uh, even though there's a few unexplored words even in the title, I think I'll, I'll venture down into the abstract a little bit. Um, there are some things that abstract doesn't do or just hints at, but that said, it's, as you find in a lot of the texts around this, is an extraordinarily um, comprehensive summary really of the whole Bitcoin system. It's just a few sentences um, and it tells us an awful lot about what's going on. Um, and it introduces the, the key elements very quickly. So, sorry one second here. Um, the, the very first sentence of the abstract is already setting it up um, as a critique in the sense we were talking about uh, last week, the, the second aspect of that, because it's already uh, pointing to the fact that it's aimed to eliminate trusted third parties from um, commercial interactions. That's the goal set up right from the start of the whole thing. And he's saying that there's a, then a little historical diagnosis that then follows up in the next sentence there about where those trusted third parties come from. Now it's not pitched as a historical theory, it's pitched as a kind of very uh, tacit or implicit um, functional theory. But it really, I think, inevitably does suggest uh, a certain kind of model of history behind it. Because he says, the reason that we have these trusted third parties is because of the double spending problem. So insofar as the double spending problem remains unsolved, then this particular uh, ideal um, I really don't think it's too strong to see it as this kind of fundamental modernist teleological scheme towards peer-to-peer -peer interactivity. That schema cannot be realized until the double spending problem is solved. So even then, though there's nothing remotely uh, grandiose about um, Satoshi Nakamoto's style, or mode of presentation, the actual claim, however modestly uh, and straightforwardly presented, is extremely grandiose. You know, it's it's almost natural when you dig, dig down into it to say he, from 
again, I think safe to say from a certain original primordial liberal perspective is claiming here to solve the fundamental problem of modernity. Um, you know, he is allowing this teleological realization that has been obstructed throughout the whole of modern history and has resulted in all the political and social uh, infrastructure that, that we have seen through a resolution, a resolution to this problem of, the, of double spending. So I think just two sentences in and we have this really just magnificent uh, dramatic uh, schema in place about what is what is going on in, in the paper. Um, the, the central core of the um, abstract is then about computers and time. Um, the, the whole uh, system that is going to be used, which is hinted at more than fully explained in this thing to solve the double spending problem, is again to just pull up stuff from last week, is about the construction of a synthetic temporality. Um, and this pushes us then, because this is tied up with, with computers and with um, a notion that also, I think, requires down the road a, a lot of uh, concerted attention, this notion of, a, of proof of work in the way it's used in this system. He's really saying that um, all power as it is being sort of brought to bear upon this system is being uh, delegated to computers. Um, and the, 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 the Nakamoto consensus, the final decision about the nature of reality is decided by computer power. And computer power uh, determined very precisely by the technical details of this proof-of-work system. Um, we'll get to a proof-of-work section, but just very briefly to skip ahead on that. The, the crucial point of a proof-of-work is that what is being done is an ordeal. It's, it's a task that doesn't allow for any kind of intelligent rationalization or simplification or large-scale solution at all. It can only be uh, resolved by work, by continuous commitment of, of a volume of computer power to trial and error activity piece by piece to, to solve the, these puzzles. Um, so it's, it's set up deliberately that nothing of cognitive significance can come out of this task. And we, and we see this in the way that it's pushing a certain type of uh, mining technology. You know, it's a, it's a kind of interesting, almost kind of anti-AI in the sense, far from trying to push computer technology in a way that leads to more and more sophisticated algorithms and simplifying solutions that will actually allow um, uh, computers to do something that we would recognize as thinking in some dignified way, it's going completely in the opposite direction. It, go, it went from sort of 
uh, normal CPUs to graphic chips in uh, game consoles that are just doing high-speed, repetitive, um, uh, crunching activity with minimal sort of cognitive element to them. All of that's actually being, uh, it's departing from that. And then it goes into these special dedicated chips that are even more um, directed towards a certain kind of strange proletarianization of the computer, towards these extremely standardized, uh, non-rational forms of, um, of work that is just to do with the sheer volume of calculation that it, that it is able to do. And the reason for this is to ensure that there is no uh, computational shortcut available. No one can come up with some brilliant innovation uh, in AI or something like that that will suddenly allow them to dominate mining. Mining has to be uh, a form of, of, of computer trial, computer ordeal that cannot be simplified or, or economized on and is always therefore going to reflect a commitment of sheer volume of computing power and the largest volume of computing power settles the consensus. So there was a very weird implicit kind of sci-fi-esque uh, computer politics involved in this whole notion of, of power as it comes in and, this. and it, it's utterly critical, it decides the nature of reality um, and, and it's being determined in a way that the, the, the intelligence that determines reality cannot be anything other than this grinding, crunching application of massive computing uh, volume to, to, to the problem. Um, the time element, of course, is because it is all done by um, time stamping, that, that um, all that needs to be decided in the system, what the consensus is based upon, is the succession of um, transactions. And he says, I think, just a little bit further down, the most helpful thing, going just pushing forward into the introduction, he says that what Bitcoin is, what, he, what we propose, he says, a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer -peer distributed timestamp server to generate computational proof of the chronological order of transactions. Um, so just so I know I'm rushing forward a little bit, but I just want to get to this one thing where he says, um, in the in the transaction section, the earliest transaction is the one that counts. We need a system for participants to agree on a single history of the order in which they were received. So all of this is about creating an artificial order of time and then settling on it through this consensus system based on the pure, pure volume of computational commitment to the running of the system. Um, so, so can I ask a question about time here? Yes, of course. It's not even a question. It's just like, I guess it is a question, but it's a very general question. And that is, you know, every system Every polit every political economic system, every system, right? Every yeah. piece of technology, in a way, 
comes with its own time binding or the way it has to deal with time. So in a way, not like you were you were talking about how uh, Bitcoin operations are like a step in the wrong direction from artificial intelligence in terms of like small smarter algorithms or machine taking on a sort of like a human like brain activity. Rather rather it's about proletarization of the CPU and crunching and repetitive work, right? So yes, I mean I'm not can I just say I'm not meaning that in either of two senses that it could easily seem it's it's first of all it's not a moral claim about it. And and Secondly, it's not at all to suggest that it's actually diverting from the actual deep teleology of artificial intelligence, which I, I think we're going to get to. I think it's more that it, it is a critique of certain naive and maybe anthropomorphic models of what... Uh, machinic, that, what machinic it is. No, for sure, but the, the, I want to do like somehow line that up with this sort of like also like how the temporality or the time binding of Bitcoin is kind of like chronological and chain-like which is also a step back in terms of like ooh everything is network and everything is simultaneous like it, there's also an attempt in Bitcoin that the Bitcoin time binding somehow uh, I keep forgetting to put, put the camera on my, on my own and, because I keep doing that with everybody else so people can see yeah, so basically, you know, th that thing you talked about in terms of like repetitive is also like reflected in the t type of time binding that Bitcoin it like operationalizes, right? Or am I wrong? Um, these two could be somehow related. Yeah, to be honest, I could use a little bit more on 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 this actually. I mean, because I think I can see several different lines that you're going on here and I'm not sure which is the one you've got greatest attachment to. I mean, one is obviously this question that you, you seem to move through quite fast about um, it seems to be uh, in a certain antagonism to, to the notion of the concurrent network. Um, but that seemed to be a passing thing and, the, and I think the Deeper point you were making is one I'm not entirely, uh, entirely getting yet on this. Um, so basically, to 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 respond to what what you what what you just said, Nick, what basically I'll, I'm trying to get at, I guess, is is there a way to see these two? I mean, in the same same way you you sort of talked about it, which is sort of like this. This re this this um, utilization of a, of repetitive work is not in contrast to complex algorithms or machines taking on a kind of like a thinking thinking role, but it's in conjunction with it. So I agree with that. I, I'm I'm not saying like no no no. It, it we should we should create this polarity, but but I'm saying like. There, there must be something, there could be something similar going on in terms of, because, because based on what I read in, in the paper, the time 
the way Bitcoin deals with time is also sort of like a little bit seems backwards or like seems old, old school and very like linear and very like chronological and that's how that's how credibility is established in Bitcoin, right? Yes. I, okay. I mean, this is obviously the thing I need to 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 dig at in your question, though. Like, what do you think? I mean, it's obviously already fascinating when you're talking about a notion of time as old school, or we could find a whole lot of interesting synonyms for that, like retrogressive notion of time. These these sort of notions. Because obviously the whole notion of the past is something that we know is really important to this. It's, it's through the construction of a past that the system is is securing itself. But but I I think there's a philosophical point you're making here about a certain uh, transition in the way that people are thinking about time that is not being taken up into the Bitcoin system or am, am I getting you right yeah, on this? Also, like, yes, but also think of think of how Bitcoin and mining is sort of like a way of sort of like symbolically is a return to a system that was there prior to fiat money which was gold base or or precious metal base uh, basis for 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 money, even though that old system had its own problem of double spending or triple spending, but this right. to me these three there could be something in sort of like this this sort of like it's 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 sort of like a back to the future kind of thing. Sure. With all three, like you you, you mean the limitation of like how much Bitcoin could actually be made, and how like that the idea is that return to some form of a solid metal, even though it's basically. Metaphorical. We know bitcoins are not solid and metal, but like the yeah. name mining Bitcoin, all all the like graphics used for Bitcoin are gold color, right? And they look like gold coins, right? Right. Just, I mean, search Bitcoin, yes. go to Google Images, you see this this gold thing, gold metaphor, visual metaphor, yes, right? Yes. Something yes. that plus this repetitive work, which is kind of mining, which is factory right. work. Plus this idea of time binding in go in in Bitcoin, which is kind of linear, could be somehow. I don't know. Is it a camouflage to make people think this is like a? It's it's like it's like it's like a bit of like uh, you know what I mean? Libertarianism. Is it like a ba move to the past, or is it a move to the future camouflaged as a past, or right. the other way around? I mean, it seems that double spending is equivalent to a causal violation because it's a closed time-like move. You move back into the past in which a Bitcoin hasn't been spent yet without modifying the, you know, you've, you've created a double in the way that, you know, in time travel movies like Primer, uh, looping through the past creates a double of the coin or of the, of the traveler. And right, so in, sure. you know, in temporal terms, establishing a stable timeline, you know, that exhibits linearity yes. in a chronology and so forth, you have to avoid, you know, global causality violations, yes, which is yes. what it would be. Yes, yes, I think that's really good. I, I think that both. I think there's a lot in this whole line that I I really hope we're not going to lose here. Like, for sure, this notion of a sort of simulated retrogression in these different dimensions is interesting. I mean, maybe they need to be teased apart a little bit. I I I, I totally agree. I I think this. Let me let me just go over what I think. You, you guys have just have just said and try and ho hold on to it a little bit and and like um, 
so so to go back from from Jake's thing back to Mo's is for sure. I think this reference to uh, time violation is absolutely fantastically helpful. Um, you know, it, it 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 is really establishing laws of time, so that when you talk about um, what's going on in time travel movies and what uh, preserving the timeline, or yes, to, to just repeat this vocabulary of violating time violation, all of this is actually now being um, instantiated in software in the protocol. I think that's totally, totally right, and and I think the gold reference is is huge, and we're gonna we're gonna be there a lot, um, and I also agree that it definitely deserves this this understanding. Um, and and this kind of language to do with a certain type of retrogression. It's a it's a fascinating retrogression. The 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 intensity with which Bitcoin focuses on simulating the fun the economic function of precious metals is absolutely remarkable. You know, it's in no way a casual metaphor. It's it's a very very deep simulation. Of of the abstract economic function of precious metals, um, and there's almost no way you can overemphasize the importance of that to the way to the way um, Bitcoin is working. I think it's when I, I'm now in going into a zone where I'm less totally sure about. I mean, obviously. I introduced this whole thing about the proletarianization of computing power, but but obviously we are talking about computing power. I mean, so I think it's really worth sort of struggling with this a little bit and 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 trying to disentangle it because because the very notion that work is best defined as a certain kind of non economizable computational activity is remarkable you know it's remarkable that this paper treats that as if it's actually quite straightforward and uncontroversial it's remarkable in that it is so at variance to what we would expect coming out of our traditions and obviously I expect but I don't think I've ever yet come across an extremely ferocious critique from the left about this use of work, saying, what the hell do you mean that work is essentially defined by a kind of um, brute force computational activity? You know, where is that? What are you doing with that? And what yeah. does that socially suggest? I, I actually read like I went into a lot of blogs and and I don't know if I posted them or not because of their horrible graphics and the language I was kinda shy about like posting them to the classroom people thinking like oh what is this guy reading this is not what we're supposed to do but I was actually interested in to see how this is trickling down into like simple FAQ language and how people are trying to set basically I was interested in to see how people are trying to set this up and how you can set up bitcoining operations right, right. and basically it's it's kind of like homegrown marijuana in a way because you have to sort of like it, it's very similar to similar to that because you have to think about energy consumption and how this will like ra raise your energy consumption. Right. I, mean, I mean if it's illegal then probably like 
police will look at your energy consumption and come to your door and say, why are you using that much electricity in your home? Yes. Right? But yes. if it's not illegal, then it's not like a marijuana production because, you know what I mean, it's okay to use all that electricity in your home yes. or somewhere, right? So that's yes. a major thing for people who mine is like electricity, right? And really, yes. literally, the, the language with which people talk about this is yes. like setting up a little shop with like workers in it, right? So it's like they talk about like you have to like really look into the specs of the graphic cards or all these like CPUs you're going to set up and how it's not based on IP, it's based on CPU and like you really have to be very good in like sort of like patching them up together and doing this and that so they, they work together. So, so it's totally like a little form of like computational labor. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a labor camp. Yes. You know, without no, no, it is. It is. And it, 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 it's just uh, I would really want to insist upon the perplexity and perversity and ambiguity of that notion of computational labor. I mean, I, I totally, I totally agree, and I totally agree on the importance of it. Um, but I think it's like it's not that we can just treat it as a metaphor for previous Absolutely. political and moral questions about labor, because it just isn't working like that. Because because the computational aspect undermines and subverts and twists the labor aspect. You know, it's it's. It's something very odd and very which we we don't have a lot of preparation for if we're not if coming out of the computer science side of I guess it's a very straightforward thing coming out of notions of politic politics and um, political economy philosophy of society all of these kind of more historical um, fields it's an extremely weird strange disorienting thing that is happening with that notion of work as it's used uh, in, in Bitcoin. So yeah, fascinating. But but sorry, just before I shut up on this little thing, can I just also make sure I don't drop the other side of what you're saying to do with this just energetic element of it. You know, I'm sure people really no one expected that it as a technological infrastructural development Bitcoin mining would set such strong dramatic imperatives on the direction of a certain type of hardware development um, and that those and that, that direction as you say is um, tied up with things like energy economy to, to do with the amount of just brute computational activity you can get for a certain unit of electricity. You know, th these are very, very, this is part of this work thing that is absolutely fascinating. And as you say, it's crucial. All any Bitcoin miner of any seriousness is looking at their electricity bill. You know, they are in a position of technological, high intense technological competition about screwing a certain amount of computational activity out of their machinery for a certain electricity bill. And as soon as they can't do that, as soon as something comes along that is actually able to crunch um, uh, these blocks more efficiently um, for less power input, they go out of business. You know, Their basic equation in terms of whether they're doing something that makes economic sense is is 
has their electricity bill as one as the as the fundamental cost factor um, in in the equation. And you know this is something that we can now see. Looking at this paper, we can see this. It makes sense. You know, almost as if it was there in some straightforward sense. But I don't think it was. I don't think that at the point that you were conceiving this system, from the from the currency side, you could conceivably imagine what setting up this new mining industry, this synthetic artificial simulated mining industry would actually do as a driver of technological development. So the, so the gold so far because our electricity is, is not all solar or not all nuclear, right? So, and even if it is nuclear, you have to mine the nukes in order to burn it to create electricity and then with, with petroleum, it's definitely mining. It's a form of petroleum mining, right? That, that, that can fuel the Bitcoin mining. So it's sort of like you get this, you get this other relation here between, between Bitcoin mining and then energy mining from the sun or from nuclear energy or from uh, fossil-based energy. And how this, this, I'm just thinking out loud. I just think it's very much like the old industrial model with human labor being cut out of it. And it's basically, you have, you have what Marx called in, in Grunderies, what does he call it? Fixed capital? You have, you have natural resources and fixed capital meeting without the, without the human labor somehow, without so much human labor involved. Yes. Um, I mean, it's. I think again, you can get a long way just by pushing this gold mining simulation hard. You know, it. Uh, I think that he's very consistent about the economics of this. You know, why does gold? If you go through the history of political economy on gold, uh, you go through certain stages of naivety. I mean, there's. At the most crude level, the most primitive level, you just say, oh, gold is rare. You know, gold is precious because we like it and it's rare, it's scarce, that immediately gives it um, value. But then when you get the sort of dawnings of a more scientific level of, of, of political economic analysis, people say, well, what does that really mean to say it's rare? You know, there's gold in the ground which we haven't extracted, um, um, it's obviously not as common as some other things, but, but what is that comparison really about? And they come to the conclusion, often uh, confused with difficult questions about what becomes the labor theory of value and the role of labor in production, um, that what the scarcity of gold really means is that the effort required to extract a certain unit of gold is the thing that is going to determine the value of gold. Like you know, you do like anything else, you're going to have a supply and demand curve, and as long as the price of gold is actually exceeding what it's costing people to extract new gold, then you will have a whole inrush of capital into profitable gold mining activities and the equilibrium state which is really fixing the price of gold is the point 
at which gold mining becomes unproductive. It's like, you know, with obviously energy costs as one part of that, you know, labor, energy, all the other ancillary um, costs involved in the process um, put into mining and at a certain point the return in terms of, of new gold production for that investment is at equilibrium with the, gold, the global gold price and so that's what's going on with the question of the value of gold and gold mining as an industrial activity and I think that it's there's no naivety about that in this Bitcoin system it's like if we're if we want Bitcoin to have value then we are saying necessarily that we are incentivizing a form of industrial mining activity and it makes no sense to say that we're not incentivizing that activity up to the equilibrium point set by the Bitcoin price. So, you know, there's no one can be surprised that it has, insofar it's worked at all as a currency, it has generated this new industry. And it's an industry that is deliberately, completely uh, meaningless outside of the production of Bitcoin. You know, there's there's some people like, I think it's called ZeroCoin, is an altcoin that tried to get people to um, solve useful scientific puzzles in the process of mining coins. And there's a very good article which I'll uh, dig out. I, I'm sure it's on the Nakamoto Institute. Uh, I think that also might be by Kravich or, or Goldstein, I'm not sure. Um, saying, look, if you think this, you're not understanding the idea. If you think that Bitcoin mining should be doing anything other than producing value through the production of Bitcoins, you, you, you're not understanding why it's modeled on gold, you're not understanding why gold works, you're not understanding what the function of mining in the Bitcoin system is. The whole point is to prove industrial commitment to the Bitcoin system through the sheer volume of mining activity that therefore entitles you to a certain proportional say in the Nakamoto consensus which then settles the nature of reality. So you know you're in a circuit that, that involves this mining activity obviously as a crucial factor and the and the uh, a very very strong analogy of that activity to mining as we know it out of normal economic history is no accident it's extremely serious and you know it's taking us back to the role of gold as money obviously in in pre gold standard and pre-gold standard um, financial systems Nick, as, as a side note, it will be interesting to see how as, as Bitcoin mining becomes more popular and more prevalent, how, how it will impact energy policies because you, know, you can quickly shift production to a country where electricity is cheap and then governments could, could like, uh, governments who have leverage 
could play with this in order to bring to attract gold um, Bitcoin mining to their to their economy by lowering the energy prices or or all sorts of other stuff in the in a real world that can somehow sort of like block or facilitate the production of uh, the production of bitcoins. Yes, for sure. For sure. But that would require uh, a huge economy of scale to already exist in multiple um, mining actors. Because you'd have to have already bought a lot of CPU hardware to have the clock cycles you know, at the level where the you know, marginal cost of electricity was going to play a significant competitive role you know, in what it costs you to mine more coins. So in terms of getting an advantage over some other country with cheaper electricity, in both places, you're al already going to need big concentrations of CPU power on the mining network, you know, um, processing blocks and generating coins in order for that to make a difference or provide any advantage. So I wouldn't think that, you know, with smaller scale users offshoring in search of, you know, cheaper solar generated energy costs, you know, is going to be that big a deal until you have... Uh, I don't know, a huge, a many-fold increase in the amount of, of mining and of block, uh, trend, block processing going on. So there's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of barriers or stages that come between now and when electricity, you know, when that, when the, um, when the thermodynamic problem becomes directly relevant to the economics. Um... I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly. Like, I mean, my sense of it, for instance, with these Chinese Bitcoin operations, which are obviously deliberately going for scale. So maybe they cross the line that you're already saying. But it definitely gave the impression that the fundamental uh, cost control element in their business was their electricity bill. I mean, they were. I think they were saying it was costing them eighty thousand U.S. dollars a month uh, to pay their electricity bills. Um, so, um, I mean, okay, I, I, mean uh, I guess I'm, I'm probably off base there. Then I didn't realize. Yeah, that's a that's a huge expense. It is electricity. Yeah. Electricity is super important in this right now, as it stands. I, I was just thinking. I would imagine more so now, of course, and continually more so. It's an issue. But I, in that documentary you just mentioned, uh, they said that there was a point at which they were mining a hundred bitcoins, over a hundred bitcoins a day in the particular right. mine in that interview. So that's, even at that, I don't know what the value was then, but being at about $200 now, that's $20,000 a day. So in comparison, the $80,000 isn't that big a deal, but I, I'm assuming now they're mining a lot but less. It's the deal. It's four oh. days of the month, right? So it's like four days of the month production goes to electricity. That's like a formidable cost in a business model, right? Mm -hmm. Because Four days out of thirty is is actually like 
12%, right? So 12% of your cost, 12% of what you produce goes towards like some form of a cost, right? Mm. That's, that's, that's something you want to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's your only variable cost, it's, it's not necessarily that big a problem for or that big an issue for a business. But I'm not sure what other variable costs they might have. I mean, there's fixed plant hardware for the you know the CPUs themselves. Security. So the plant is is safe. Security, <laughs> technical check. Yeah, you know, just um, troubleshooting and so forth. Having technicians on site and dealing with but problems. I, but I think I was also reading how at least for the first period that you're just setting it up and becoming part of this, you need to really be known and part of like a network of people who know they can connect to you. You have to use the right software, right? And I'm just talking about like amateur people getting into it, right? Mm. So, so in order for your CPUs to be used and be available, you need to do a bit of net networking and knowing people and sort of like messaging people and uh, thermodynamic barriers to entry. Is that what you what you wrote? Yeah, I did. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, so yeah. I'm def definitely something. I'm determined we're going to come back to. I I thought your little uh, post that you sent was really interesting there. Um, but, but yeah, because of course we're talking about the whole question of irreversibility, which is one of the big time dimensions, and it's just vast in this whole thing. We've already come across irreversibility when we're down in the introduction here. But, but if I can just stick just for a minute to this, um, to this question we're on about the, the mining issue, I mean, it should be the case that if people are treating Bitcoin mining as a normal industrial activity and it seemed to me what the impression I got from this Chinese video was that the people are just sitting down there they're not weird uh, libertarian cyberpunks saying you know we'll use this thing to overthrow the state or something like that I, I, I'm not I'm not dissing those guys because I love them dearly but they're not those people they're um, they're saying uh, look this is a business opportunity it has certain costs, it has certain preconditions, certain managerial demands it makes and and we'll do it at scale uh, as a business opportunity and you know it's going to cost us this and we'll produce this and this is what our balance sheet's going to look like. Now if people are thinking like that, if they're just arbitraging economic activity as we expect is the normal economic mentality, then it should be the case that Bitcoin mining approaches equilibrium, you know, where when you put all your costs together, your new machines, your electricity bill, your plant, the, any specialist people that you need and all of this, and then track it against the Bitcoin price and the number of Bitcoins you're producing over a certain period, you have a normal profit rate. Um, and so if there's a whole bunch of questions for me that then come off that, like if it isn't working like that, why isn't it? You know, I don't understand it. And as I say, that particular video was very eye-opening to me about about the way that at least some people are seeing it that way. Um, 
if it is working that way, then um, I, the, the things follow from it that are consequences of Bitcoin that I think are not um, usually on the radar. Um, you know, we're, we're talking, for instance, about this thing about mining equipment, where we're, but we're, the cost of the equipment, the function of the equipment, the electricity consumption of the equipment, the level of expertise that is needed to employ that equipment, um, that um, mining equipment is going to set the terms of this Bitcoin equilibrium. You know, it's going to um, it's going to be that there's a whole bunch of ancillary businesses which are not the Mac, generally the Mark Andreessen businesses sort of engaged in complicated social, commercial things to do with Bitcoin. They're businesses that are just making these machines to sell to Bitcoin miners um, that allow them to optimize their Bitcoin production um, given these other costs and given the Bitcoin price and the particular conditions of where those workers are uh, situated. And so this industry has its own deep logic to it that I think is very dry and is sort of lacking in sort of, it's the complete opposite of some of the things we were talking about earlier in terms of ideological excitability. It's not, it has none of that at all. It's just much to do with profit and loss accounting and and a certain very specific technological demand that is now being introduced uh, in within that framework. If 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 nobody has a question, I want to just ask a question and respond to what Nick just said. So should we look at this as sort of like a way of like how the old political economic order is trying to absorb or corrupt or or subsume Bitcoin or is the other way around even though it might in the beginning appears that way um, I think it'd be good to have a little bit on both of those sides that just you were just suggesting how that could work in both those two directions. Um, I mean, I, it's, if I can take well, just one step back on this, um, a lot of the, I'll go, I'll go further now, I'll say people that I think really get what Bitcoin is about, not on the um, computer science level, I mean that's interesting and people can have a brilliant technical grasp of that and make a contribution to tweaking the protocol if they can get the consensus right and all of these sort of things. So that, that's a particular constituency. But people who understand it as more as a, as a, um, a social phenomenon and an industrial revolution say that the whole center of gravity of the system really lies in its understanding of incentives and the way it binds incentives into the operation of the system. So the mentality of the Bitcoin miner 
not as something psychological, but as something that is actually being uh, produced in a circuit along with the development of this of this capability becomes absolutely essential. And the and the mentality of the um, Bitcoin miner, and I'm sorry if I'm just using a few kind of strained Marxist analogies here, but I think they actually are informative. Like that Marx goes to great effort to say, look, when you're talking about the bourgeoisie, don't get caught up in their particular irritating characteristics or or their corruption or certain kinds of kind of uh, annoying affectations of superiority or any of this trivial thing because then you're getting distracted. He says the, the crucial thing about the bourgeoisie is that they have a fundamental incentive structure that is intelligible in terms of the system and is is essential to an understanding of the way that capitalism uh, functions. Um, that that it has a certain economy to it in in the sense of a kind of cleanness. You know, it's it's if it makes a profit, it's good. If it doesn't make a profit, it it's bad. And anyone who uh, allows themselves to digress from that basic, very compact set of economic incentives should be pushed out of the of an important economic role. And the system itself should police itself for this ideal bourgeois mentality in terms of the management of capital. And I think this is really something highly relevant to Satoshi Nakamoto's notion of Bitcoin miner. You know, the Bitcoin miner has no political agenda. The Bitcoin miner is not um, interested in making any kind of point through the application of Bitcoin. The Bitcoin miner is simply wanting to uh, maximize their production of bitcoins. Um, at as we've seen, there are these then these questions of on the cost side too, at, at, at minimal at minimal cost. And in doing that, in this purely sort of flat, economically incentivized uh, direction, they will then police the system, they will supervise the system, they will carry out all of these functions of systemic overview that have previously been put in a completely different department of social understanding. You know, these are governmental functions. They're functions that people had associated with some strong sense of responsibility or ethical notions to do with uh, a commitment to honesty, a lack of corruption, sound government, public interest, all of these highly sort of ethically charged notions of responsibility, the, the Bitcoin protocol wants to collapse them entirely into these very, very basic economic incentives and have them appear totally as accidents. You know, you don't, a Bitcoin miner is, does not require any kind of testing for their commitment to the system or why they're doing it or their motivations or their sense of public interest or their commitment to the Bitcoin community. All of that stuff is completely irrelevant. All that is required is that they are rationally optimizing their Bitcoin production at minimum cost. So I think that ties in with what the point that Mo is making about this, you know, about co-option. Because you can't, 
you can't really co-opt a Bitcoin miner because they are down to this degree zero of basic economic incentives. I mean, what can you, you, you would have to actually drive them into a hysterical state of ideological excitement where they would be prepared to sacrifice all their economic interests for some other obscure purpose to do with shifting the direction of the, of the Bitcoin protocol. Um, and that, that we will, of course, get back to, but people have said that's a completely impractical uh, understanding of what, of what can happen. Also, Nick, I think, I think the kind of time binding that Bitcoin suggests, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, it, I, I'm not sure, maybe this is a naive comment, but it somehow safeguards Bitcoin from being, being exploited for an, for an <clears throat> extra surplus over and above, which we know with both industrial production of what Foucault calls the disciplinary society and the cybernetic production, which Deleuze calls the control society, or like the financialized world that we know sort of like post-Federal Reserve and all that, that it was always, it was always all about that. It was always about how to propose this system and then find ways to immediately corrupt it and get more surplus out of it. But Bitcoin seems to be a little bit sort of like resisting that type of like that type of like political economic interest in it because it seems to not have a loophole that could immediately be exploited by the very same people who propose the system. Yes. I think so. I mean, it, look, it seems to me there's extremely strong, very, very traditional, profound left critique of Bitcoin for the fact that even in its purity, it realizes liberal historical teleology to the most extreme degree that we've ever seen. So it's not that I think what you're saying immunizes against that level of critique. But I think at the same time, if one's criticism is guided to this kind of what we maybe see as a kind of hermeneutics of a suspicion about there being these, these secret, as you say, supplementary agendas that are riding it, I think that there's a lot in what you say. A lot in what you say. I mean, obviously, I've slightly undermined my capacity for full agreement because of what I've already said about the relation of Bitcoin to the, the deep and dark state. You know, I think that it's it's almost certainly the case that there are complicated agendas investing it um, because it does allow it facilitates social commerce outside the public sphere. I mean, that's what Bitcoin does. So anybody who has an interest in that, whether one sees that as, as beneficent or malign, is, is, has reason for interest in this Yeah, so, so like, why, 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 run, why do drug runs from, from Colombia to United States to then use the money in the, in the dark CIA budget when you can just buy servers and just make extra money for the for the security apparatus outside of uh, Congress's approval, right? So it's like so it's like 
So it's like, yeah, so there's all sorts of like people and powerful people who can get into this business who want to who wanna make money off, the, off, off some kind of like a budget or a chart. But we've already yeah. had that with like, I mean, I mean, I use the marijuana parallel and I'm going back to that parallel again with the example I'm. Sorry, you just went silent there. Oh, sorry. I'm just, I'm just trying to, uh, I'm just trying to like turn my camera on. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, now. Okay, but, but what, I, but what, the kind of, the kind of transparency that, that like liberal transparency that Bitcoin offers is a kind of like it actually shows that liberalism has been always communism of the privilege, and saying like, hey, well, if you this is this is the real liberalism, which is not the communism of the privilege in the name of liberalism. I don't know if I'm. No, if, if, if I think if that is the criticism of liberalism, then that definitely holds a hundred percent. You know, I think there is there is another criticism of liberalism that is more fundamental. That even in its perfect ideal, uh, liberalism is about systematic desocialization and de-democratization, and that and that um, Bitcoin facilitates that to an absolutely extraordinary degree because we're back to this thing about a peer-to-peer, a peer-to-peer relation. That is the fundamental, I would, I would argue strongly, the fundamental liberal nexus in the classical sense is the peer-to-peer bond in which implicit in that is a complete dismissal of any legitimate social interest in the, uh, in the transaction that is taking place. Now obviously for a lot of people, um, for uh, our deepest our deepest traditions of left critique, that is intrinsically uh, deeply uh, vulnerable to critique. Um, so I don't think that Bitcoin, I don't think there's any point saying that Bitcoin is going to somehow elude that. I, I, I would be stunned if that, if that were to happen. Um, but yes, I certainly agree that it's like, in another more colloquial sense of democratization, type tied up with notions like um, um, formal equality or it's already in the notion of a peer-to-peer every node on the network whatever it may be has equal formal status not only by some matter again of an extrinsic transcendent entity saying you know you have to treat each other fairly but by the very nature of the system being incapable of not treating its different nodes as having equal privileges dependent solely on this ultimate criterion of CPU power and obviously then on the on the higher level about the actual quantity of, of bitcoins that one has for to engage in commercial activity with. You know, given the given the given the social essence and or nature of humans, I think Bitcoin has to do a lot to completely overcome that social element and truly turn the participants into mere like singular isolated nodes. 
Well, I think it's, you know, a lot to do with what we think peer-to-peer is saying. Because I think there is a kind of way that it can be pushed into a kind of much more positive and maybe straw man state than is merely intrinsic in it. Like, um, to say that any two nodes, which of course needn't be in any strong ontological sense individuals at all. I mean, it's completely formal. It could be anything. They could be co-ops. They could be artificial intelligences. They could be, you know, we, we they were, it's just a mask that has a particular Bitcoin account. And so there's no positive ontological content. If, if someone was to say, isn't this saying we should all be atomic individuals, they are super adding a whole bunch of stuff onto that and making it much richer and much more kind of positive in its social statement than it, than it, really, than it really is. So um, I think it's important from the side of the left, which I'm not pretending to identify with in the slightest, um, but I'm intrigued to understand in its, in its most highly advanced form, to keep their eyes on the ball in terms of really what is the object of criticism here. And you know to see it as the abstract peer-to-peer -peer relation, and not any more rich and baroque ontology of the primacy of the naturally understood individual or anything of that kind, which is which is extrinsic. It's been brought in from outside. So everyone, we have about 15, 20 minutes left from the class. If you, if you want to like join in the conversation, feel free to come in because we only have 20 minutes left. I think may, maybe we should also at this point just uh, look forward a little bit in the sense that we, we've got a total of eight weeks, but I think that it's two components and we should have some sense of it as a, as two as two four week blocks and uh, it would be very good to sort of in terms of uh, the, the work people want to do for this and and to systematize people's participation to start thinking I think um, coherently about how how that's going to work and I think it would be nice to see the classroom used as a way of just formulating the particular direction on this material that people want to take. Um, so I would recommend that, I mean, next week is going to be the third week out of a four-week thing. I think it would, I would recommend if everybody could manage to find just a very short statement of their own sense of their orientation in relation to this material and the kind of angle that they're wanting to take on it and the particular problems uh, that they find most compelling, that would be a helpful thing all around. I think it would be interesting to everybody's classmates to, to get a sense of what people's interests are and I think it would be helpful for that person to just get a, get a, a kind of formal sense of their own direction. Um, 
and so I should just emphasize this really that should be a short thing I mean long is fine if people want to do that but but don't feel if you if you can do three sentences comfortably do three sentences I mean I'm happy with three sentences I would find that that helpful don't feel there's some gun to your head that if you can't do 500 words it's not worth doing anything that's I don't think right um, so yeah I was going to say, if, oh, yeah. well, um, it would be great if people um, could post those to the, just as a suggestion, to the classroom yes. before the next class so that yes. um, we could all have a chance to read them and maybe we could even discuss if, if anybody wanted to discuss anybody's or any, had any questions. Yeah, so yes, I was, Ian, I was going to suggest that those who are enrolled in a class must be doing this as part of their, like, because, you know, like it's almost like Nick is asking those who are enrolled in a class to do this, which means it becomes class requirement. For the auditors and those members who are also taking the seminar or, or are going to watch these videos, they have access to the classroom and it's optional. So they just enrich the conversation by adding theirs. But those who are enrolled, please take note that like this is sort of like a require, requirement and make sure to put it down. I myself am sort of like wearing two hats here. I'm a, I'm, on one hand, I'm just facilitating this as, as the technical person from the new center, but also I am taking the course with Nick because I want to like take this course with Nick. So I will be like formulating my three or four sentences or more and put it there and I encourage everybody else to do so. So we can, we can make this as Nick was suggesting more productive in terms of actual research that's going to take place in the seminar. Mm. Great. Um, so, anybody has any questions or any comments? I have one <laughs> insane question. Go ahead. Uh, which is going back to to what you said about modernity, the problem of modernity. The reason I say it's an insane question because it's. I mean, I realize uh, it's you know, huge, but uh, you, unless I misunderstood you, it sounded like you were saying, Nick, that you thought the problem of double spending was the problem of modernity. And, yes. And so well, I want to unpack that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's just, the good thing about this is that honestly, I think it's just, we're talking our text for this grand historical and ideological story is the first two sentences of the abstract of this paper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's extremely, it's, it's extremely focused. And the way that the, the logic of this goes, as I'm seeing it, is that there's a proposal of a peer-to-peer -peer system. Now, I... I want to say, and this is a point where obviously I invite the most ferocious and concerted and multi-directional <laughs> criticism, but I want to say this model of the peer-to-peer -peer relation is archi-liberal teleology and, and therefore is the, determining, is the determining driver of modernity um, as everyone sees it, whether on the left or the right, the fundamental structure of the modern social order is a relation to this 
germ of teleological possibility of the absolutely unimpeded, uninterrupted transaction between two nodes of a system without any kind of transcendent uh, intervention by the wider social body. Um, so that's, that's the kind of germ. And then he says, um, but the problem with that and the reason that we don't have that system and, and we the reason that that relation is not has not been fully realized is uh, sorry let me take I'm, I'm going one step ahead of myself he, he says rather than that what we see are these trusted third parties now trusted third parties I think are, are the name in this paper for um, what are for Kant uh, metaphysical disputes, what are for Marx these structures, these large social structures of, of to do with um, the state and and its particular modes of domination, obviously in the modern period, the relationship between capital and the state. You see something very similar in Deleuze and Guattari. It's, it's a placeholder, the trusted third party is the placeholder for that element in the social order that is responsible for um, it, it's the object of critique I mean I was tempted to immediately go into a more sort of moral political mode to say it's the source of oppression or all of this this is the language that would naturally flow it's the oppressor it's the tyrant it's the form of domination you know but it's better to keep it clean and just say um, it's um, it's the object of critique. It's the non-imminent instance that critique targets. And for him that, just to repeat for the, uh, once again, you know, this, he's very, very consistent. The trusted third party is that thing, is that target. Um, and then, so the final step is then he said, so why do we have all of that stuff? Why, why do we have that, that uh, my, my vocabulary is failing me slightly because trusted third party sounds so sort of mod, modest, you know. And and my claim really to this is that it's not modest at all. It's vast. I mean, I'll just say for shorthand because at least it's got a bit more bite to it. The state. Why do we have the state? Set it up as a problem in this in on on this kind of anarcho sort of uh, vocabulary. We have the state because of the double spending problem. Know. The double spending problem explains why these institutions exist. They explain why the um, ultimate realization of liberal teleology has not occurred. Those two things being absolute flip sides of the same historical problem. You know, and therefore we get to this thing, which of course is grandiose, but I think is also extremely strongly supported. That this is saying the fundamental problem of modernity is explained by a failure to resolve the double spending problem. And then, as soon as you've said that, the Bitcoin paper is put in this position as being this key to the whole. Hi political and historical dilemma 
of modernity. Mm-hmm. Nick, you Nick, you refer you you and 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 the paper referred to it as double spending, but I'm sure yes. you understand that this double is actually triple, quadruple. It's an yes. endless doubling, right? Yes. Because yes, in, yes. In, in 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 like. I think I know enough to suggest that double is also kind of like modest and nice. It's actually, it's an endless doubling that happens right. in this in the monetary system we already have, right? Yes, yes, totally. I mean, I think that doubling often does that. It's like, um, you know, when we talk about a doubling period, we're not talking about stuff doubling. We're talking about stuff exploding in 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 the mass proliferation. And like, like, I mean. I'm almost tempted to make this a kind of course, a course topic is the uh, is the relation to primer. You know where that's about doubling. Every time you do a time violation, uh, there's a doubling. And then if you see, I mean, I will try and attach a link to this fantastic chart of the time, the primer timelines. By the end of that movie, there is this vast population of 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 these doubles have been produced as the doubles themselves go through the time loop and get redoubled and the people go through again to try and sort it out and double themselves again and there's bodies stuffed in the attic and there's people being sent to Buenos Aires and the the whole <laughs> of the movie is just crammed around the edges with this explosion of, of doubles. So I mean I totally agree. I, I, I take it I, that from now on when we're using doubling and doubles and all this language in in this context, we mean the opening to proliferation without limit. Because that's how that's how our fiat currency has operated, right? I mean, it's doubling of the doubling of the doubling. It's like it's constantly like replicating and doubling. Yes, yes. You you can't once you let once the, you the let. Job, the, oh, this is what I was going to say that. The, the the fun the, the real function of the trusted third party has been to actually either authorize these doublings or actually be the doubler itself. Hmm. So in states in which government owns the 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 the, the central bank, right? The state is doubling, and in places like United States, where the like Federal Reserve is a quasi independent. Yes, I think this is complicated. I think this is complicated. I mean, you know, it's one thing that I think we should definitely put on our agenda if we can. We we can definitely get started on it now, but I think we should put it as an agenda item for next time as well. And because I think to to address it well, we have to actually look more concretely at the history of finance. And I think one, I, I know this is something you want to do, and I think one thing that we definitely need to look at is the just mainstream history of banking and in particular um, obviously the operation of fiat currencies which are obviously in the background to all of this because of the fact that um, our gold simulation is is a critique of the fiat currency model and as soon as we do that we're talking about um, fractional reserve lending and so I think, I mean, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, and there's more to it than this, because we're still talking only up to like 19th century, early 20th century phase, but I think as soon as you have fractional reserve lending, 
you have a certain kind of institutionalized, tolerated double spending. Um, you know, if if we look at the way it operates, obviously this is something the Austrians and all the hard money people have always said. You know, you go back. I'll endlessly going back to this, but I'll go back once again right now. You go back to your your gold depository. You put gold in the in the depository. You get a note. It says you're entitled to reclaim your gold from the depository. Um, so. Um, assuming that that gold depository behaves in extremely archaic traditional fashion and simply locks that gold away so it's out of circulation, there is no increase in the money supply whatsoever. And so there is a there is a, a an absence of the possibility of double spending in that there's no way that you can go along with your note claiming this gold and the person from the gold depository can take the lump of gold and also go and spend it so that there has in, would in that case have been a doubling taking place and already that would be endless proliferation because if if it were the case that the owner of the gold depository was able to take that lump of gold and treat it as currency they could obviously take it to another gold depository get a note use that note use instead, that note and instead. Is there some sound problem? It's Sorry, a, I'm getting a weird feedback effect here. Is that? Yeah, it was John who came in and he didn't have his mic muted, but I think it's fixed. Okay. I mean, sorry, if there's someone who's wanting to talk, because I'm probably rambling on about this, but I, I just want to say that the, the, the mainstream institution of fractional reserve lending is obviously immediately involved in the problematic of double spending in a constrained form because there are sort of reserve requirements and there are certain structures that try and you know prevent it igniting into a complete hyper hyper inflationary chaos but but still you can see that money is being spent twice or multiple times and basically your reserve requirements are the reciprocal of the multiple of spending that is permitted by that banking system of the actual hard money as would be defined by Austrians or, or anybody else. Um, do you think, Go do you ahead. think that that's related to the sort of assumption of infinite growth that a lot of people argue, I mean I think that sort of can be generally agreed is built into um, you know capitalist industrial models up to this point that infinite doubling, so that the fractional reserve assumption is both dependent on the assumption so the capital reserve practice is both based on the assumption that lending out more of this money than you actually have is going to be met that that credit is going to be met in the future by growth enabled by that lending out process and that that also guarantees that there won't be a bank run in which people are coming back and all trying right. to get gold that actually you know isn't there for their money and that that links to you know the the infinite doubling that's made possible by double spending, understood not as you know a literal doubling by two, but as an operation, yeah. an exponentiation operation, is right. isomorphic to the exponential growth of uh, of capital or of an industrial society. I think the relation is really complicated. I think the relation there's 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 maybe the 
best place to start with this is if you look at the um, there's a negative exponential based in in Bitcoin where you know because there's 21 million bitcoins that can be produced altogether and uh, every four years the amount of bitcoins released for a certain amount of, of work in the complicated sense the weird sense that we've been seeing halves so you can see that this is actually like on the surface on the most super superficial level it's xenonian you know it's you're going half the way to the wall every time and um, so it's a perfectly smooth exponential series but going in reverse Sorry? Okay, sorry, I, I, mi I missed what the last two things people have said there. So, sorry, can I get, get a... Yeah, just, it's a logarithmic growth in the amount yes. of currency. Yeah. It's a negative logarithm in the sense that it's... The, the, the Bitcoin expansion is a negative logarithm. Um, and the, the interesting thing about it is that it's um, intended to be a compensation for the positive logarithm of uh, captured in Moore's law and which as far as Satoshi Nakamoto is concerned is this fundamental as you say dynamic of industrial capitalism with a doubling period to certain kinds of exponential improvements in performance so rather than it actually being uh, in reality a Xenonian uh, suppression of 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 uh, Bitcoin production. It's supposed to simply balance out the fact that people's Bitcoin mining operations and all of this stuff are following these capitalist dynamics, doubling in power. And so, in compensation for that, the protocol should have this breaking mechanism um, to make sure that that the Bitcoin uh, production isn't just uh, blasted out within a, a few years and then stops. It's an attempt to actually um, spin out the process of Bitcoin production and those incentives involved in Bitcoin production in the face of a Moore's law that's 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 uh, natural tendency is to is to um, push those all out as quickly as possible. So if you look at what's happening there it implies that there's a, a, a total decoupling of expectations about capitalist dynamism and uh, currency growth um, and, and that is typical again of a kind of Austrian hard money position I mean they they would say that the the relation that you have sort of indicated between bank credit relaxation and capitalist growth is a kind of a perversion that has happened and the natural course is towards uh, monetary deflation so that as industrial capacity naturally increases the value of money let's say originally gold should increase in compensation just as uh, with Bitcoin, it's obviously criticism from certain quarters is is intended to be deflationary, 
and the, and the rate of deflation should be direct the direct reciprocal of capitalist economic economic growth so obviously these are just expectations I mean someone can say you know you're just wrong about that and you will if you have a deflationary money system you will actually throttle um, Right, but that's you a problem that a cryptocurrency or any digital currency doesn't necessarily have in the way a physical one does because you have infinite divisibility. As a well, gold is in theory infinitely divisible. I right, mean, I but know Bitcoin's you can practice. Yeah, it, it, it got, Bitcoin, as in all of these things, is super gold. You know, I mean, everyone <laughs> treats gold as perfectly homogenous, even though, of course, you know, you get down to the nano scale and that falls apart. I mean, Bitcoin, there is no nano limit to it, and it's the same in a whole kind of other dimensions. You know, the the, the monetary perfections of gold are just notched up a certain amount by um now, by Bitcoin. Now, I want to I want to like I want to suggest something, and you know what? We we're already four minutes past our time but but this has been like I've been wanting to ask this for the, like ever since you and you and Jay got into this conversation which is <clears throat> the real basis of and you know by the way we we are not now operating at least as far as American dollar is concerned we're operating in a QE mode I don't know it's 4.0 6.0 whatever QE mode in which Federal Reserve is no longer legislated to even announce how much cash, how much U.S. dollar they're producing and putting yes. out. That number was one of the consequences of the last economic meltdown, the 2008 economic yes. problem, was that Federal Reserve made that announcement kind of like secretive. So we don't even know how much doubling is taking place. Yeah, just yeah. Money, right? Yeah. So, and so all of this operation, which began sort of like with doubling and ended up with like this like exponential growth thing, to me, as someone who's been studying it and looking at it since 2000, it, as as someone who's like who's got like a like a like a Sunday painter interest in it, I'm not an economist. I'm not like a you know political economist. I just have an interest in it. Is a way of so and, and you know these theories kind of like come. Like my predictions, or or the way, or the naive way I looked at it, has been kind of like substantiated by great work done by Esposito, Sohail Malik, and Nitzan and Bishler, and all these people who who look critically at like the way capitalism function as a way of sort of like quantifying the future human capital in present, right? So when you print money, you actually you actually taking a bet or making a bet about future output. Because that's how the bottom doesn't fall. That's how this pyramid does not collapse. It's because there's actually exponential human activity, social activity, productive activity that somehow support this doubling and tripling of cash, right? But that's you have to good somehow be exactly. Pardon me? That's making good on the bets, either you know directly or you know as it turns out, you know arbitrarily, indirectly, is making good on the sum of bets made in the present. Yeah, but that also destabilizes the currency. Yeah, it's not all Bernie Madoff, right? It's not all like a pyramid scheme. It's like saying, okay, we're going to put out $3 trillion this year into like out there because we, based on economic data we have, we know this much activity globally will absorb this dollar and make it operational without it becoming a pyramid scheme, right? So we're, 
so moving to Bitcoin, it's kind of like shifting from this type of like fixing of yeah. the future to almost fixing of the past, right? Like we were talking about. It's like it's about creating that that lineage to the credibility of this gold. That's what the nod job comes from this shift, I think, also part of it. This shift from fixing the future to sort of like uh, thinking about the past maybe. I don't know. I'm just thinking loud. Yes. I don't know. It's, it's complicated, I think. I mean, my, you know, my concern with that model that it's like in proliferating... I mean, let, let me just again take one step back. It's just to say that I think it's absolutely right that there is this threshold of change that goes beyond standard fractional reserve banking into something genuinely odd and probably or it too has phases you know f with the first wave just after World War II of, of Keynesian macroeconomic management and then into the really bizarre stuff that's happening now that I honestly doubt anybody really understands you know that's a strong statement but I'm skeptical whether anyone, it's an experiment as far as I'm concerned that people do not understand. Um, but if you look at what's happening there, 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 there is not a positive correlation between any realistic expectation of the level of future economic activity and the increase in the quantity of mo monetary stimulus is there. I mean, isn't the relation closer to inverse of that? That it's precisely when the economy seems to be flatlining onto a onto a level of, of minimal growth that the one puts one's foot down to the pedal of, of financial stimulus and produces oh, right. I forgot you're absolutely right well that's the sense I mean there's another leg to the interaction with the future that makes it there you know there's a cybernetics there you have a feedback loop that can be operated in both directions and so stimulus is taken to jumpstart the economy because yeah. when you put all that extra money out it operates as investment which produces the production which then you know causes um, causes the future production that the bets that ha that is needed to make good the bets implied by increasing the money supply um, and it seemed, you know, maybe you could argue that that process, you know, started to collapse or went non-linear with, um, with 2007, 2008, and the beginning of QE. I mean, I don't, I, I agree with you. I don't, certainly, I don't understand exactly what the ramifications of the, of the threshold change that happened there were. But I don't know. It, it seems an important point, like a supporting point for the idea that fractional reserve, that the fractional reserve process depends upon assumptions about the future that um, there's another half of the circle. And so that makes the yes. activities, the Keynesian activities, make sense. Yeah, I would just say that the cybernetics are dementedly complicated in the sense that how we, you know, there are a lot of these different loops. I mean, let, let me just give you one example that I saw recently just on a, on a sort of um, economics blog, but I thought was absolutely fascinating on this. Where, um, you know, one motivation for uh, QE and financial stimulus is obviously to try to generate a certain level of what's considered to be healthy inflation. And healthy inflation being that people will not want to hang on to cash. This is now going back to the traditional Keynesian thing, you know, where the basic problem 
is that there's excessive cash preference that takes on an irrational state. Owners of, of wealth do not want to invest it in productive activity and want to just hold on to it um, as money. And if you want to drive them out of that, and it certainly seems that that's a huge motivation in a lot of world central bankers, um, you know, like why, for instance, does Germany have negative interest rates now and these sort of things. So you use inflation to try and basically prod uh, owners of capital into productive investment um, by generating a certain level of acceptable inflation. I think, I think the Japanese central bank is completely explicit about that. They say, look, we have an inflation goal. Um, we're nowhere near meeting that goal, and so we're going to stimulate until we can actually get people to circulate yen at a greater velocity than they're currently willing but the to do. But the circulation, and this is a critique of the left, right? I mean, I mean the left that really understand what's going on in, 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 in the financial world is that is that quantitative easing has only caused people with cash to sustain the stock market activities to keep the market afloat and keep the market going up which which in, a, in an old like Marx Marxist view of how economy works in terms of real economy and fictitious economy does not really have any bearing on actual productive forces it basically the quantitative easing put the cash out, and then it's it's lended to investors. Investors in, instead of holding on to it and accruing interest on it, they buy financial instruments with it. And by through buying financial instruments, whether they're stocks or bonds yeah. or derivatives, they somehow keep the economy going because all the numbers would look good when you wake up next morning. And 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 what do you call it? The 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 Wall Street is doing well, right? But it doesn't actually end up going down. It just keeps the keeps the one percenters uh, protect the one percenters from feeling the effects of the real downturn. But but if you um, if you just try and be generous with this interpretation and say that it works to some extent, like say for instance the um, the whole uh, fracking gas patch you know tight oil thing in America where huge amounts of capital has gone into that very cheap money um, insofar as it does work it obviously builds up productive capacity builds up output produces um, supply gluts and therefore depresses prices and therefore produces deflation so you can't, what I'm saying about this is you can't even, the, the feedback loops are so strange and tangled that you can't even be confident about very basic and seemingly uh, inevitable causalities. I mean, it's, I would have said a year ago, if you churn out, if you mass produce money through a central bank, you can only produce inflation. You know, it, how could that possibly be deflationary? But I mean, there are arguments that it can be deflationary, and precisely what we're seeing now worldwide is the deflationary effect of massive economic stimulus by producing huge surplus of, of otherwise economic capacity, supply glut, price collapse, and 
deflation. So whether or not, you know, I think this is too complicated. I'm not trying to persuade people that that is what's happening. I find it actually quite persuasive of some of the patterns we've seen, like, you know, uh, even oil price seems to me to be something that could be put into this model quite neatly. But leave aside whether or not this is right, what I think is definitely the case is we cannot confidently anticipate what kind of cybernetic circuitry we're actually dealing with here. You know, we just don't know how these, what the, even the polarity of these, of these feedback loops are. And if we're sort of, I think, with undue generosity, saying that central bankers understand even roughly what the effects of these policies are, it's, at least questionable. Um, you know, they depend upon certain models uh, and the exclusion of others. Maybe this is a good place to end the class because we are already almost like, uh, we definitely 15 minutes over time. So if, if people don't have questions, maybe we should like, end the class and move the rest of the conversation to the classroom and also remember to do uh, Nick's request of coming up with few sentences for next class. And so as a sort of, um, as a thread I think we, we can fall back on pushing our way through the, through the paper but people can read that on their own, um, obviously bring in stuff from anywhere in it, I won't try I don't think there's any point trying to get us to be too linear about the way uh, we're working through this and, and I'll be very interested to get a sense from people about the particular angles of approach that they're wanting particularly to pursue about this about this material. Okay, so okay. thanks everyone very much. for. for thanks everyone, for the great class. Thank you. Next, Thank next you. 10am Eastern and see you in the classroom. Thank okay, you. have a great week everyone. YouTube. Bye. Bye.